Hello and welcome to JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. I'm your host, Meera Chandan, uh, co-head of FX Strategy. Uh, and today I'm joined uh, by Jay Barry, uh, co-head of U.S. Uh, fixed Income Strategy from New York. Uh, the topic of discussion today uh, is U.S. rates markets, uh, which is why Jay is, um, is joining us today. Uh, we've seen obviously very volatile moves in uh, U.S. Treasury yields, particularly in the long end of the curve. Uh, and uh, what we will be discussing today is uh, the main drivers behind it and also what the outlook is going forward, as well as implications for FX, of course. So uh, let's uh, get right into it, starting with rates. Um, so, Jay, there were a lot of things that happened this week in the U.S. Um, you know, it wasn't, you know, there, was, there were a bunch of events that led to the sell-off. We had the Fitch downgrade um, to the U.S. AAA ratings. You had a larger uh, than expected uh, financing need uh, that was announced from the Treasury. Uh, you you've written that this was 200 billion over your own estimates, so you know pretty pretty punchy overshoot there. And then of course you had the Treasury refunding an announcement uh, with uh, substantially larger auction sizes. So among these, what in your mind has prompted um, you know the sell off in U.S. Treasuries and and you know what to you was really the most striking event uh, in the past week. Hey, Mira, thanks for having me. So you're right, it's it's been quite a week. Uh, I mean, we look at where we are, and front-end yields are about 10 basis points lower, but long-end yields are 20 basis points higher. And you talk about those three events, it's almost like they there's an old adage that bad things happen in threes, and that seemed to happen this week. Um, when I look individually at each one of these, um, I think it had various, at various points, an impact on the Treasury market. So maybe... Um, to start first, I think, with the supply side of the equation, with both the financing estimates and the refunding announcement, um, you see that Mike Froley and Afonso Borges had written a note about a week ago on the topic of the budget deficit this year and how it was tracking wider, largely related to weakness in capital gains taxes, uh, but also to high, higher net interest expense. But even after adjusting for that, um, the, the Treasury's financing estimates for the next couple of quarters, as you said, were significantly higher than we would have expected. And that would indicate that we're tracking an even wider budget deficit than our $1.48 trillion forecast for fiscal 23, and potentially our $1.575 trillion forecast for fiscal 24. So I think that was sort of the, the first flag for the markets. But the real news, I think at least for the markets, and not necessarily quite as much for us, came on Wednesday when Treasury announced an increase to coupon auction sizes, which to be fair, we and the markets were expecting. And the announcement that we got on Wednesday was only $1 billion larger per month in increases than we had anticipated. So very close to our modal view. But I think what caught the markets off sides is that this seems to be um, the beginning of what will be a series of increases um, to coupon auction sizes. And it's been, been our view for some time that the Treasury would have to increase coupon auctions likely through this time next year, so probably for the next three quarterly refundings after this. But nonetheless, I think that was more than the markets expected, and that was somewhat of the catalyst for, for higher yields. And, and it's an important catalyst because we've been focused on sort of the transition in demand for Treasuries um, over sort of the last year or so in this current environment. And as we've talked about, I think we're transitioning away from what we call price insensitive demand for treasuries to price sensitive. Um, and, you know, you look at it and in aggregate, the Fed, U.S. commercial banks and foreign investors at their peak a decade ago or nearly a decade ago owned about 75 percent of the treasury market. Um, and most recently, even as recently as about a year ago, owned close to 70 percent. That share has fallen below 60 percent. 
and should fall further as particularly the Fed continues to, to, to run QT along. But as we transition to more price-sensitive demand, that's probably going to re require more concession to underwrite supply. So I can understand why we would why that would be a catalyst to somewhat higher yields overall, particularly when it caught markets off sides for how many increases we were likely to see. So I think that's a piece of the puzzle right there. I actually don't think that the ratings downgrade was impactful on the treasury market at all. Um, you know, some of the work that we've done, um, you can take a look at the slope of the curve. Um, you can take a look at various factors. And really, when we look at um, various measures of ratings across various developed market government bond issuers, you find that the sensitivity is on spread to OIS or on spread to SOFR, and that each one notch ratings downgrade from a single, from a single ratings agency's tends to narrow swap spreads in the belly of the curve by about two to three basis points. So we saw that in the wake of the announcement, but then it reversed course afterwards. So I'm not sure that the ratings uh, announcement actually had a major impact, in large part because I think um, the things that Fitch points to have been known for some time. And I think if you look at most U.S. fiscal metrics, it's been closer to sort of a double A rated entity than a triple A rated entity for some time. So I'm not sure that the ratings agency action had as much of a catalyst for the move to higher rates than the supply announcement did. But even then on supply, we only think it's one piece of the puzzle and it was exaggerated by a few other different sort of factors here. Um, one is, and we've been sort of highlighting this, is that until as recently as last night, valuations have been very rich. 10-year yields trading 15 to 20 basis points below their fundamental drivers, um, which is the market's Fed policy, inflation, and growth expectations. And we've finally gotten back to somewhat cheap to fair value for the first time in about five months. So I think it's a bit of mean reversion there. And the, the final piece of the puzzle is that it's positioning. And our treasury client survey has been sitting quite long relative to where it's been on average over the past year. In fact, close to the longest it's been over the last five to 10 years. And I think that's meaningful because a piece that we wrote a couple of weeks ago found that the Treasury Client Survey, when it deviates sharply from medium term averages, um, tends to sort of predict rate moves in opposite directions. So as we had this supply announcement and as we had some mean reversion in valuations, this brought with it an unwind of long positions. I think from the from the end user community who've been adding duration, waiting for the coming of the end of the Fed tightening cycle. So as we sum it up, I think that's gotten us to where we are right now. And, and it's interesting, you know, post payrolls that we've rallied back somewhat, which I think does underscore that there was some technical nature to the sell-off this week. Um, but yields are still sitting you know, close to their highest levels of the year and close to their highest levels of the cycle from here. Thanks, Jay. So um, it looks like this has to do uh, with a few technicals. You've got a positioning angle. You've got the fact that valuations weren't uh, weren't um, uh, weren't constructive to start with. But what is what is the outlook on U.S. rates going forward? Um, do you think the recent sell-off in Treasuries makes you more open-minded to become uh, sort of more overweight Treasuries, or do you think this is a bar event uh, which has more uh, more uh, drama to unfold in the pipeline? Yeah, I think from a tactical perspective, absolutely. The the backdrop for adding duration right now, Mira, has become more attractive because of what you talked about, the fact that valuations look somewhat cheap for the first time since the regional bank flare-up. The likelihood that positioning is more neutral, and we will not get another look on that until next Tuesday when the latest, when the next survey is released. Those are both helpful in that regard, particularly with outright valuations sitting at or near their highest levels of this year. 
I also think from a tactical perspective that the near-term data flow should be supportive of lower yields as well. And looking ahead to next week, we've got the July CPI reading, and we're looking for another sort of more benign two-tenths type reading on core CPI. And if we look at the series of data points that we've gotten over the last week and a half, first ECI and today payrolls, if CPI falls on this, it probably gives you greater comfort that there's going to be room for the Fed to pause in September here, which would be supportive of lower yields as well. But for me, I, I think this is likely to be a much more tactical view on treasuries than a more structural view. And certainly, like we've talked about how the end of the Fed tightening cycle typically brings with it lower yield levels. But I think because inflation expectations remain elevated, that's going to be something that keeps rates more elevated for some time, even once the Fed goes on hold. Separate from that, and I think we know from the changes that were made to the U.S. forecast today, we've raised our growth forecast for 2023 into 2024. And we've now pushed back the timing for which we think the Fed will actually begin to normalize rates from the second quarter of next year into the third quarter and at somewhat of a slower pace there. So that's going to mute the ability for rates to move considerably lower over time. So I would use this sort of constructive view from a more tactical trading approach rather than a more structural approach right there. And Jay, for next week, we also have the U.S. Treasury auctions um, in the pipeline. Uh, do you, do you have a, a, any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I think on margin when looking at the supply, um, the, the three-year auction is probably going to be somewhat easier digest, to digest than the rest of the curve. Um, and perhaps the 10 and 30-year auctions will require a bit more of a concession all is equal. But very interestingly, I think the 30-year auction itself will probably be dependent upon the outcome of the CPI report on Thursday, Mira, because the 30-year auction comes just um, four and a half hours after the CPI report on, on Thursday morning. And some of the work that we've done in the past shows that when there's a downside surprise to CPI, the 30-year auction tends to go well, but when there's an upside surprise, it tends to sort of go poorly. So um, I think that could sort of influence the direction here. But overall, again, the fact that rate levels are sitting near their cycle highs, the fact that we're probably becoming more confident that the Fed's on hold here should mean that um, these auctions should be digested, I think, somewhat more easily overall. And it's encouraging to me today that the bear steepening that we saw Tuesday through Thursday did not continue and that we actually reacted to the employment report in kind, which gives me some confidence that we're probably not going to be on the receiving end of the same sort of very highly volatile environment that we were in the middle of this week, where you had bond yields sell off 30 basis points over the course of three days or so. Now, Mira, if I can just pivot to you and just sort of ask you the same questions that, that you had for me. Um, do you think that the Fitch ratings downgrade um, matter? Does it matter at all for the U.S. dollar? Um, I think, Jay, on the dollar, as far as the ratings downgrade itself is concerned, um, I'm uh, probably in the same camp as you are, which is that mechanically uh, and purely by itself, it shouldn't really impact um, the dollar. I mean, you know, first of all, as you point out, the credit curve for um, the highly rated sovereigns is actually quite flat. Um, and, you know, if I take a look, uh, go back last couple of de decades and look at the prior instances of ratings downgrades uh, that we've had uh, for various currencies, um, uh, you know, from uh, from the AAA rating, whether that was UK, Canada or New Zealand or parts of the Eurozone, uh, we haven't really historically seen a persistence of currency weakening, uh, you know, that sort of weakening in reaction to the knee-jerk uh, knee reaction to um to the announcement doesn't last for more than a week or so, uh, you know, unless unless um, you have a situation, uh, you know, the, a, a catalyst that was 
uh, or an event that was more fundamental and uh, dire in nature. So, you know, something like a structural shift, um, as it was in the case of a Brexit vote or the sovereign credit crisis and the EMU, uh, you know, when the ratings actions are accompanied by those kind of events, it's a completely different story uh, from, uh, from what we've actually just seen uh, from Fitch. And, uh, you know, we've also taken a look, for example, at the foreign sponsorship of local uh, debt assets in, in times of previous ratings actions and don't necessarily see uh, a very consistent uh, shift there either. And of course, the dollar most of all enjoys, uh, you know, its uh, reserve currency status, the preferred currency and the dominant currency on that front. Um, so, uh, you know, clearly there is going to be some uh, sort of benefits that will be awarded to it. And as a result of this, we don't really think the ratings downgrade by itself uh, should really make a difference. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, it doesn't mean that, um, you know, that one should ignore completely the underlying fundamental issue here. And that issue remains um, concerns around the U.S. fiscal um, metrics which really does stick out in comparison to the rest of the developed world. Uh, if you take a look at the fiscal deficit, for example, it's um, currently at its largest outside of a recession. Um, you know, this was also the case of, uh, you know, in 2018 and 2019, but, you know, the, the magnitudes are larger this time around. So one has to imagine that, uh, you know, as and when that recession does hit and fiscal stimulus is required, the twin deficit problem for the U.S. is actually going to worsen, uh, you know, if not persist. So, um, you know, the, I, I think that is going to be meaningful. And, you know, if you take a look at a multi-decade period um, um, history, what we find is that the broad dollar is loosely correlated with the twin deficits. And, um, you know, if, if, if these deficits persist, then a dollar weakening bias over the longer run certainly should be on the cards. So that's that's really the main underlying issue that that I would really want to stress at this point. But as you said, these issues are well known. I mean, there's nothing this week that, you know, yes, we got an extra spotlight on it because of this unfolding of events in, in threes, as you said, uh, but these issues have been well known. And in the near term, and, you know, at least on a multi-month kind of basis, I think other factors are going to be more relevant. And generally we find that cyclicals or overall risk sentiment is really the more important driver for, for the dollar than, um, than this particular issue. So important from a medium term perspective and certainly important, you know, to consider. Um, but as we move to the shorter term, what are the other near term factors that you're looking at and emphasizing for the dollar right now? See, our view in recent weeks has been to be um, defensive overall with a bullish dollar bias. Um, just, you know, given if you assume that the starting point, which, you know, we had seen of the last couple of months is you had resilience in U.S. data. Clearly, the fiscal, um, you know, stimulus was um, was certainly the leakage there was part of that, it looks like, um, you know, in retrospect. But you've had resilience in U.S. data. You've had substantial softening in European and China data, which continues. Uh, this comes in an environment uh, where the dollar is yielding more than 5% and um, G4 central bank balance sheets shrinking at a record pace. So that combination and backdrop by itself was was something that had, um, you know, basically prompted a bullish dollar bias from, from our point of view. You know, obviously price action uh, to monetize that view has been much harder, but um, you know, you add to this now actually additional factors that are um, that are actually intensifying these bullish dollar forces. You know, I think rates markets, what's going on over there is going to be quite important. You've been talking about uh, not just the shrinking central bank, um, you know, balance sheet, but obviously greater supply as well. So effective supply goes up. Um, that is an issue, you know, as U.S. yields head higher, 
um, or, or stay elevated, again, symptomatic of the U.S. resilience, that does end up being supportive for the dollar from a rate differential standpoint. Uh, it clearly doesn't help you going into August. You know, you talked about how this is a poor liquidity month um, for treasuries. But I think what's also important to note that August tends to be seasonally dollar supportive. Uh, you know, you tend to find that uh, the dollar strengthened like 70 to 80 percent of the times um, in the month of August, particularly versus growth sensitive currencies. Um, and then the global context matters as well. You also have um, an ongoing testing of um, of the BOJ's resolve as far as JGBs are concerned. And JGB yields have been heading higher as well following the, uh, the recent yield curve control change. So if you have a situation where US yields have gone up and it's pushing up the de facto uh, fair value of DM yields everywhere, which is then in turn putting pressure on those uh, those central banks as well, you know, it does sort of, it doesn't really make for a particularly sort of constructive environment to say that, yes, you can see dollar bearish outcome in this scenario. So I would be focusing more on um, on these issues, you know, particularly the seasonality, the, liquid, the lack of liquidity and uh, what's going on globally as well. Um, I think you add to that the fact that energy prices are higher, which could be a bit of a tax on growth. Um, and obviously, you know, if, if this ongoing deleveraging continues, that starts to become an issue for FX as well, because, uh, you know, net net on margin, I think um, uh, positioning metrics are showing that investors are um, slightly short the dollar. So um, this this is something that is um, sort of giving us a bit more cause for concern as we're going into the month of August and something we're going to be quite vigilant for in the coming weeks. So uh, we'll stop there. If uh, you need uh, more information on our research, please take a look at jpmorganmarkets.com for research reports, either from Jay Barry or myself on rates and FX. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2023 JP Morgan Chase & Company, all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on August 4th, 2023.